Welcome to Finding Amanda, an investigatory and information-based podcast with the sole purpose of determining what happened to Amanda Lynn Caudill of St. James, Missouri in December of 2014. On December 13, 2014, Amanda Caudill would visit with her father, Richard Lee Caudill. This would be the last time that he would ever see his daughter. The following day on December 14, 2014, Amanda would seemingly disappear into thin air and she would never be seen or heard from again. Hello, I'm Brandon and I'll be your main host for the duration of this series. We have elected to release our first episode today, February 3rd, 2023, covering the disappearance of Amanda Caudill because it is recognized as the National Missing Persons Day here in the United States. We hope to bring awareness not only to Amanda's case, but to the thousands of people that vanish in the U.S. alone every year. Someone you love being missing with no semblance of closure is a feeling that never goes away. Throughout Finding Amanda, we will have the opportunity to speak with those closest to Amanda and hopefully gather some valuable insights into the activities leading up to and immediately after her disappearance. There are a number of key facts and details that are unclear regarding the disappearance of Amanda. While we will strive to ensure accuracy, we are also fully aware that misinformation is prevalent. As we work to clarify these details, keep in mind that there is a chance we will need to correct or update information as we progress through the case. The fact that this is still an active investigation will limit the amount of specific details that we will be able to share. I have spoken directly to law enforcement and feel that they are doing everything within their power to solve this case. The fact that this case has been ongoing for over eight years and is not considered cold is a testament to that. Unfortunately, the limited relevant information that has been provided to law enforcement up to this point has not led them to Amanda. Please note that this first episode will be narrative heavy as we attempt to build a common understanding of the events surrounding Amanda's disappearance. The dates that we will mention are based on our best assumptions of how events transpired. However, there are still a lot of gaps and unknowns. We will elaborate on how we came to these conclusions as we discuss those subjects. If you're familiar with the case, you might notice some key details or dates that don't coincide with what you know or previously thought you knew. Keep in mind that attempts have been made to verify all key details that have been released to the public but are still conflicting or unclear in some way. Few people that possess this information have been willing to participate up to this point. This in and of itself may strike you as odd, and I agree. Attempts have been made to clarify information with law enforcement and close family members, and we are awaiting responses. Feel free to reach out to the show in the event you have relevant information to our timeline of events. You can send us an email at findingamandacaudill at gmail.com. While speculation is inevitable in situations where there are a lot of unknowns, we are going to try and limit the speculation within reason. We will be presenting some lesser-known facts of the case, all of which will have been verified to the best of our abilities. There have been a number of misreported findings published in news articles and on social media that do not benefit the efforts to resolve this case. Some of our guests do not wish for their identities to be revealed, for a multitude of reasons. However, all other information will also be verified as best as possible prior to releasing. Not only do we want to respect their privacy and their wishes, we also don't want to do anything to compromise the investigation. We do plan to theorize within reason. While there are a substantial amount of theories surrounding this case, 
the majority of them are not substantiated in any way. The number of plausible theories are significantly smaller, and these are the ones that we will pursue. Did Amanda leave of her own accord to start a new life? Did she leave with a known acquaintance that was going to help facilitate this? Did she leave with an unfamiliar or unknown person that had ulterior motives? Or did she never leave the area at all? It's important to note that while we plan to lay the groundwork of events surrounding Amanda's disappearance, it is equally as important to understand who Amanda was, as a person, a friend, a daughter, and a sister, and what she meant to so many people in her life. Amanda Lynn Caudill was born on June 4, 1987, to Richard, better known as Lee, and Anne Caudill. Lee and Anne would later divorce in 2002. However, they shared a total of four children together. Amanda has one older sister, Andrea, one younger sister, Abigail, and a younger brother, Richard Jr. She was raised in southern Missouri and graduated with the Tiger Class of 2005 from John F. Hodge High School in St. James, Missouri. We have been lucky enough to speak with one of Amanda's close friends, Brandy, who met her during the third grade and stayed close with her up until the time of her disappearance. She has offered to share one of their many high school escapades with us. Here is a clip from one of our discussions where she goes over Operation Dark Cloud. It's a ridiculous story. <laughs> You're not even going to believe it. Okay, so the four of us, which would be Beth, Shannon, Amanda, and myself, we used to just drive back roads in high school, sometimes during broad daylight, just, you know, for something to do, listen to music. And we stumbled upon a goat farm somewhere, and they were really cute, and they were the little fainting goats. And we had this plan that we were going to return after dark, and we were going to free these goats. So our first attempt, we realized going out there, there's really nowhere to park and there's no light and it's an electric fence and we can't fit goats in the car and there's a lot of like logistical obstacles here. So we decide to like regroup, go home and hatch a real plan to save these goats. Oh, it's going to so be a we, whole operation. Yes. Yeah, so we named it Operation Dark Cloud. Okay. <laughs> and a week later, we were in full camo, had our hair like cornrowed, black face paint, we even got, like, flashlights, and we had little Nerf guns. We had all sorts of stuff. We had everything we needed. We had slingshots. For, I have we to ask, ready. what what were you going to do with the Nerf guns? What, we don't know. We just thought it looked tactical <laughs> with scouts. It was a good plan. Good plan. We were, like, 16-year-old girls. So I remember Beth's mom <laughs> even being like, what are you guys doing again? <laughs> like, this is kind of ridiculous. But so – well, we got out there and immediately realized low crawling through the ditch to steal goats in the four-door Ford Taurus was not a good idea. And all the house lights came on, and so we all ran and got covered in mud and, like, left. But that ended up being probably one of the most memorable nights of our life. So coincidentally, just prior to finalizing this episode, we were able to have a conversation with one of the other co-conspirators during Operation dark cloud. Here's a conversation I had with Beth and her take on the incident. <laughs> yeah, so what's funny is I um, 
I almost put that. It was such a huge toss-up between, you know, basketball camp and then that. And I'm going to go with basketball because I know it's going to be covered. (laughs) (laughs) Just getting gas at the gas station, you know, and stuff. Like, people probably were kind of alarmed to see us at first because, you know, (laughs) Oh, yeah, cornrows and face paint strapped with Nerf guns. We, it was so fun because, like, uh, you know, we ended up bailing and ended up just, I remember we went to um, our friend Katie Bassass and her mom was a teacher, and we ended up just kind of, like, sneaking up on the house, which also was kind of a sketchy idea to sneak up on somebody's house. Yep, yeah, but, especially you know, in uh, rural Missouri, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, didn't think any of it through, really, but, I mean, we had an absolute blast just getting dressed up and you know, going out and just being teenagers, and I mean, it it was so much fun, and it it really has like stuck with all of us. Um, we bring up the whole Operation Dark Cloud, and we had we had code names, and we just ended up naming all of us like different Muppets, and Amanda was Gonzo, and Brandy was Kermit, Shannon was Miss Piggy, and I was Animal, and then we just called my car the Muppet Mobile. <laughs> Antics such as this were not uncommon for Amanda and her friends. However, she also enjoyed more traditional activities. She enjoyed most outdoor activities and growing up really enjoyed hunting with her father, Lee. Amanda enjoyed watching and playing basketball. Wearing the number 30 her senior year, she played the forward position for the St. James Tigers. According to another close friend, she enjoyed basketball so much that for a time, she even considered possibly coaching in the future. As she got older, her time spent with her friends typically encompassed floating down the local rivers, having coffee dates, and girls' nights where they enjoyed wine and doing each other's nails. Amanda was notoriously known for her love of rap and hip-hop music, and could frequently be seen or heard bumping her favorites, such as Ludacris and Lil Wayne, throughout the local area. After graduating high school, Amanda, as well as her friend Beth, would both attend a branch of Missouri State University that was located in West Plains, Missouri. While neither would stay long, Amanda was able to complete a year towards her associate's degree in general studies before withdrawing and returning to her hometown of St. James. While in the St. James Rolla area, Amanda worked a variety of jobs, most in the restaurant or service-related industries, and by all accounts, she enjoyed it. She liked that type of work. She liked working around people and meeting new people and the environment related to working in those types of establishments. While it's easy to remember and highlight the best of times, it's paramount that we also discuss the not-so-best of times. I feel that it's important for a few reasons. First, because everyone has made mistakes and everyone has a past. Everyone deserves forgiveness. And because mostly, I feel that it is more likely to be related to her disappearance than anything else. Like many young adults, Amanda began experimenting with drugs and alcohol at a young age. It may have led to, in some people's eyes, an alternative lifestyle. She liked to party and have fun, plain and simple. It's been described to me that this lifestyle may have led to a degraded relationship with certain members of her family. Also, like many young adults, Amanda suffered from depression and possibly post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which we will discuss later. Amanda also began abusing drugs, predominantly opioids. The downward spiral of substance abuse and depression would pull Amanda further away from her close friends and family 
and closer to those who may not have had her best interest at heart. Amanda would become romantically involved with a man whose name we won't mention, but this was a fairly serious relationship that was on again, off again for several years. This relationship would eventually lead to Amanda and this man being arrested on charges related to credit card theft, credit card fraud. While he already had a criminal record and would continue to add to it in the coming years, this was Amanda's first and only serious legal issue. She would ultimately plead guilty to the charges and was placed on probation. By all accounts, it was around this time that Amanda made the decision to start cleaning up her life, resolving her legal issues, and looking forward to the future. One of the things that Amanda thought would contribute to this successful turnaround was relocation. She had relatives in nearby Illinois and elected to remove herself from the tumultuous environment that was currently surrounding her. A new start and a new environment appeared to be everything that she needed to accomplish her goals. Before long, Amanda found herself in central Illinois, where she started a new job, got a new car, and began making friends in the area. Now, Amanda didn't completely abandon all of her relationships in Missouri. She routinely made return trips to her hometown and visited with old friends, all of which claimed that her road to recovery appeared to be going well and that she looked fantastic. Unfortunately, the good times wouldn't last, and it wasn't long before Amanda found herself at the center of a deadly domestic violence incident. It's been described to me that Amanda had moved to Illinois in an attempt to clean up her life round about 2011. Does this sound accurate to you? Yes, definitely. Do you know of any significant event that occurred while she was in Illinois that she was potentially involved in? Um, I do know that she witnessed a pretty awful crime. Um, it was a murder of a, a small child or toddler. From what I understood when she talked about it with me was she was with a friend and either they walked in or they were in the home and said friend's boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, he was not the father of the child, but they had or were together. Um, I'm not sure what the fight was about, but he began essentially assaulting or beating the child. Mom tried to, like, get involved, get him off. And at that point, you know, Amanda went and got help. I'm not sure if he took cell phones. I'm not sure why they didn't have them, but I know she went and got help. The child died. Uh, the mother did not, and it was not long after, maybe a year and a half or so, that she did have to testify against him in the trial, and she, she was very concerned with all of those things. So did she stay in Illinois that whole time after the incident until the trial, or did she come back to Missouri? She did end up coming back to Missouri uh, later in 2011. I can't remember the exact time, but it had to be at least late summer. And, uh, and then she returned 18 months later, approximately sometime in 2013, probably around Memorial Day, Labor Day. 
Yeah, so, um, and it was right prior to Memorial Day 2013. Um, I spoke to her on Messenger and mentioned, hey, I'm coming down, let's hang out. And she had said, hey, I do have to go testify this week for this trial. And it was towards the end of Memorial Day week, Memorial Day week, or maybe the first week of June, because all she says is for the week. And then she mentions her dad's birthday is on the 4th. Um, and that would have been the 4th of June, I believe. But we had planned on getting together shortly after I came back down. Do you know anything about the results of the the trial? If the guy was convicted, did he go to prison? Yes, he was convicted. Um, exa- the exact charge, I am unsure of. Uh, so, yes, I know it, it was always very hard for her. There was a lot of intimidation. She was very, um, whoever this guy was, she was she was scared of him. Have you heard anything about any type of uh, his association with organized crime or gangs or anything like that, or is that just kind of rumor mill stuff? Um, I don't know the the name of his affiliation, um, but yes, yeah, she had mentioned more than one time there, that there was a concern. Um, with who he was. To add some clarification to these statements, we were able to research this case specifically and confirm that in May of 2011, David Garrett, who was the suspect involved in the death of his then-girlfriend's daughter, was charged with her murder. Amanda, while it doesn't appear was an actual eyewitness to this particular crime, she was a witness to previous instances of abuse from Garrett towards his then-girlfriend and her daughter, as well as a male child that they shared. Amanda and several other witnesses were called back to testify against Garrett during a trial court in May of 2013, in which he was convicted of the toddler's murder. As mentioned, this incident would influence Amanda's decision to leave Illinois and return to her hometown of St. James during late summer of 2011. She was immediately brought back into the fold with her good friends, who put forth their best efforts to support her continued recovery, as well as assist her through the particularly horrific incident that she just experienced in Illinois. I've been told that Amanda on several occasions made references to nightmares about the incident, and that she felt a certain amount of guilt because she couldn't prevent the tragedy. When Amanda came back to Missouri in 2011, she began working at Colton Steakhouse. If you're not familiar with it, this is the casual Western-themed family restaurant spread throughout the Midwest and the United States. Later the following year, 2012, Amanda would be released early from her probation, stemming from the previously mentioned credit card charges, and appeared to everyone to be continuing on a successful path of recovery. She would later take a better job at a local Greenstay motel where she served as a receptionist and attendant. Amanda would maintain this employment up until the day of her disappearance. While everything seems to indicate that things were truly turning around for Amanda, this is the time where a lot of her actions are either not well known or not discussed openly. She made new acquaintances and began spending less and less time with family and close friends. It's reported to me that the life transitions taking place, such as continuing to grow up and mature, friends growing apart and having their own life worries, new jobs and new friends, ongoing family issues, 
and the persistence of mental stress due to depression and PTSD may have led Amanda towards the wrong path in life once again. She began associating with individuals who were known to be bad news. The majority of these remain unknown to family members and those same close friends who tried to protect her. It was feared by some that she might have fallen off the proverbial wagon and was abusing opioids again, which only led to increased tensions and a greater divide between Amanda and those that cared for her most. In the months leading up to her disappearance, Amanda's interactions with her close friends was minimal at best. Aside from irregular social media contact, most of them had not even seen her in a couple months. However, none have indicated anything substantial that they can attribute to her disappearance. Amanda is reported to have been casually dating someone at the time, or just prior to her disappearance, but had no serious significant others leading up to the date. On Friday, December 12, 2014, a co-worker stated that she told them she was going out that night with some friends. While these friends are most likely known to law enforcement, their activities and Amanda's state of mind is generally unknown. While Amanda was seen by family members following this account, verifiable information and her activities start to become extremely unclear. In an account given to the Phelps County Focus in 2020, her father described his last interaction with his daughter. This encounter happened the day prior to Amanda's disappearance, but it's unclear if this happened the day prior to her disappearance or if it happened the day prior to her being reported missing. But we're going to continue referencing that point throughout the series until it's clarified. So, during Amanda's visit with her father, Lee, he stated, quote, She came to the house and I could tell something was wrong. You could tell by her mood. I took her outside and I asked her what's wrong. She said nothing, and I said BS. I knew something was wrong. She was almost in tears and her face was red. I told her, you need to tell me what's going on so I can help you. I said, I'm here for you. What's going on? She said, nothing. I can take care of it on my own, and let's go back in the house. I said, okay. I didn't want to push it. I thought that would only push her away. Unquote. At this time, Amanda was reportedly staying with her grandparents predominantly, but was known to couch surf with friends from time to time. It is presumed that on the days prior to her disappearance, she was actually staying at or spending time at her mother's house. Her brother, Richard Jr., still resided at home with his mother, so she was possibly spending time with him. On the day following her visit with her father, Lee would receive the dreadful call that his daughter was missing. He, along with other family and members of the Crawford County Sheriff's Department, conducted a search of her mom's property into the night with no results. This would be followed up the next day, 16 December 2014, with a more extensive search of the property that involved the use of helicopters and canine assets. It's important to note that this search was not a quick or easy one. The property spanned several acres and was very rural, located several miles outside of St. James proper. The property itself consisted of thick brush, dense woods, steep hills, a pond, as well as a tributary creek. The woods in this area are substantial, however, around this time of year, the foliage would have begun to thin and fall, making observations by the search party much easier. While law enforcement and family members scoured the property for any sign of Amanda, none was found. It has been reported that the canine team showed no indications that Amanda had ventured into the woods and were only able to track her scent in and around the driveway. 
The question of why so much focus was initially placed on the property itself and what indications were given that would imply she was still there is easily answered, but not so easily explained. When Amanda was discovered to be missing from her mother's residence, it was found that her black Scion TC coupe was still there, and it's important to note that it had no mechanical issues. Along with her car, Amanda left her car keys, her wallet, her dog Jeffrey, as well as a handwritten note. The contents of this note continue to be a source of great speculation. However, while I have not personally seen the note, multiple sources have verified that the contents of the note did not clearly indicate her intentions, but paraphrased, simply stated that she was leaving, not to worry about her or try to find her, and that she would be fine. Nothing indicates that anyone besides her had written the note or had influenced her writing the note. There is also nothing that indicates the age of the note. While her wallet was left behind, it's been stated that an identification card was taken. Now, this could have been an actual ID card or a driver's license. This has not been confirmed. In addition to an ID card, she also took her cell phone and a 270 caliber hunting rifle. Given these details at the time of her disappearance and her previous struggles with mental health, the reaction by her family and law enforcement seems completely justifiable. However, when the property search resulted in no evidence and the fact that people just do not vanish into thin air, law enforcement had to begin exploring other possibilities. How could someone, seemingly on foot, travel such a great distance in such a short amount of time that they wouldn't be found by such an extensive search? Why would the search dogs indicate her scent being lost in the driveway, but her car was still there? Why would her apparent intentions to leave and start a new life result in her leaving her beloved Jeffrey, not only behind, but abnormally staked outside the residence? Why did she feel the need to take her hunting rifle? Why would she not take her car unless she feared it could be tracked? And if that was the case, then why take her cell phone? There are only a few logical explanations for Amanda's disappearance on that day. She left with someone else that she knew who has never reported this activity. She hitchhiked or traveled with someone that she didn't know, or she never left the property at all and was somehow not found during the search. This last possibility became even more unlikely when law enforcement received word that her cell phone activity on 15 December 2014 indicated that it was not near the property at all, but approximately 60 miles east along the Interstate 44 corridor. Next on Finding Amanda. When searches in the immediate vicinity fail to find Amanda and her cell phone activity indicates that she has left, law enforcement begin to expand their search parameters. Tips begin to surface regarding her activities the day of and in the days leading up to her disappearance. There was a couple people that she worked with that were kind of sketchy characters. And that's the first time I've ever heard that name. You know, like I've never, in all the rumors that I've always heard, I've never, I've heard something about a pawn shop, but never anything that specific. I'm just saying, I think that every person or every place that Amanda was that day should be rechecked. Every single place, the pawn shop where she was last seen, um, the motel, 
maybe even McDonald's because of that other. I mean, I think everything should be rechecked. The question everyone is asking, and I've always asked about the phone peeing in Pacific and not at Bourbon. And I've always had this question about it because I found it to be absurd that we're eight years into it. And it's now like, hey, we were wrong. Again, I just heard this, not from law enforcement, just from other people around town, that someone reported seeing her in a green van at McDonald's either the day of or the day after she was missing. Amanda Caudill is a Caucasian female who was 27 years old at the time of her disappearance, and at the time of this recording would be 35 years old. At the time of her disappearance, she was approximately 5'7 to 5'8 inches tall and weighed approximately 145 pounds. She had short blonde hair, blue eyes, both of her ears as well as her nose was pierced. If you or someone you know have any information regarding Amanda's disappearance or her current whereabouts, please contact the Crawford County Sheriff's Department by calling 573-775-2125. Anonymous tips can be submitted to the Greater Springfield Area Crime Stoppers. All tip submissions are kept completely anonymous by using the tip hotline number 417-869-TIPS or 417-869-8477. Or you can submit your tips on a secure online website at p3tips.com. Tips can also be submitted to the Missouri Missing Organization at info at missourimissing.org or 573-619-8100. This information will be included in the show notes. If you know something, please say something. It's been long enough. Finding Amanda is a Sage Media production and is available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.